I knew this was going to happen. I get you talking, and then it's going to be really hard to pull you back. I better stay on camera, hadn't I, Rob? That was a good sound. Did you guys like that sound? I sure did. It's been a long time since we've had that much noise in this room, so it's pretty exciting to be... What's that? Not your noise, Sig. Well, that was a pretty good noise, too, Sig, to start us off. That's quite all right. Uh, you're, not, you're not in any danger of being fired, Sig. I can promise you that. We are um, we're moving this summer. Summer, we always spend what we call it's the season of the writings. We look at Old Testament wisdom literature, and Job's, or Job, Jake, Jake has done a great job with Jonah, although he did run away today because he's sick. I, I'm missing him today. You can tell. I feel like I've lost my arm today without Jake around. Uh, but he's, he did a great job on Jonah, which is kind of Old Testament wisdom literature. We're going to spend the rest of the summer on First and Second Peter. We're going to be in First Peter 1 today. Uh, these letters that Peter wrote have, have a lot to offer us uh, in our lives today. But before we start reading and looking at our text today, I want to take a couple of minutes to, uh, to just set the context of these letters. I want a couple things in your mind. Peter writes these two letters, as far as we know, from Rome he writes it to believers who are scattered throughout what is Turkey, modern-day Turkey today. So there's churches all over, mainly Gentiles, some Jews there, but mainly Gentiles, and he's attempting to remind them of who they are. As followers of Christ, he's, he's trying to keep them grounded because life is very difficult. Uh, they're, they're entering the, the, the reign of Nero, uh, lots of persecution, for believers, it's happening. And so he's writing these, what I call, fundamentals of, of faith, what it means to be a Christ follower. And as, you, as we go through these, I want you, first of all, to think about the situation as you think about the readers. That's what they're living in. This was a scattered church, a traveling letter that's going to move around from church to church to this mix of Jews and Gentiles. Um, and, and like I say, they were difficult times. They were being persecuted very often most of these recipients would not have been Roman citizens. This area had been conquered, and they brought in the nobodies, the people without status, to, to live in these areas. And so a lot of them had no Roman status. A lot of them, as believers, were being persecuted, and, and it was a difficult time. It's a time when you need to be refocused on the truth. That's one of the things we have to come back to in the middle of our struggles is what is really true. The second thing about context is the source. I want you to think about the writer. This is Peter that's writing, right? He says in, in chapter 5, verse 12, with the help of Silva, Silas, or Silvanus, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I've written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. Remember, he's, he's writing to them. This is Peter, the guy who's gone through everything Peter went through, right? He, he had this process of his own life falling apart, he was the one that said, I will never leave you. And then three times in a row said, I don't even know the man. Remember, he, 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 he had these great visions of how he was going to be the strong follower of Christ, and they all fell apart. And now 30 years later, he's writing to people who are struggling with persecution and reminding them of the, the true gospel of Jesus and says, stand fast in this. This is really important. He's matured. He's learned these hard lessons 
along the way. And so uh, now he's passing this along to others. I've, I've titled this series New Identity and New Hope because that's what he's reminding them of. When the troubles come, this is what you can bank on. This is what you can believe when life is difficult, when there's struggle. So we'll read chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 12. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkle with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Then he, then he does this psalm of praise. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice... Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. Now what Peter does, especially in this first letter, is he reminds the recipients of the truth that they can stand on. Their lives are... Anybody ever feel your life is so busy that you're just running? You're like on autopilot, just trying to get everything done. And, and, and when that happens, especially when struggles come, we often forget what it is that we can actually count on. And what, what Peter does is talk about the fundamentals of a Christ follower's identity. He says you've got to know who you are, first of all. Vince Lombardi, the, the famous coach of the Green Bay Packers, I, I grew up on American football, I'm sorry, you guys maybe didn't. I'm sure you probably didn't. Some of you, there's Gary, Gary knows Vince Lombardi, right? Uh, in 1961, his team, the Packers, lost in the, in the equivalent to the Super Bowl, the championship game. They lost it, it just in a, in a last-second play, and they were devastated because they'd had a perfect season up till that point, and they lost this game. And the first practice of the next season, he walked into the locker room, and he held up a football, and he said to them, gentlemen, this is a football. And these are, these are guys that are professionals, right? They've played their whole lives. What's he saying? He's going back to the fundamentals. In fact, they used to joke with him in practice because he would teach these guys who had done this for years and were paid money to do this. He would teach them how to block and how to tackle the basic fundamentals. One of the times the player said, Coach, can you slow down? You're going a little fast for me. And the whole team burst out laughing because he's concentrating on the very fundamentals. But what that would do, it would mean after that 1961 loss that he would never lose a playoff game again. 
because he taught them the fundamentals. And here's Peter looking at the church spread all throughout Asia Minor, and he's saying, guys, you have to remember the fundamentals. That's what's going to hold you when everything else falls apart. And there's two things about the identity of a Christ follower that he says. First, he says they are chosen by God. Chosen by God. It's so important. He says the same thing in two different ways. In verse 1, he says to God's elect, the people he's chosen. And in verse 2, to those who've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is important for them to realize. You are not just anybody. God has picked you. He has chosen you. He has called you. And I'm not going to get into, you know what? We read this with the whole, you theological people are reading predestination and all that I think you almost need to put that aside because we make an argument out of here that I'm not even sure Peter was trying to make. What Peter was saying is, you belong to him. You're his. Not because of what you've done, not because of anything you've... He says, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He just picked you. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the message, says, you are the ones chosen by God from nothing to something, from rejected to accepted. I love that because what he's saying is, you know, as, as life falls apart and you feel like you're disconnected, you feel like you, you have no home base, you feel like everything's falling apart, this is the place you are accepted. This is the place, you know, I, I find one of the biggest struggles people have as I interact, you can bring it back down to this, they want to be loved and accepted. We, we, we act a certain way for other people. We choose certain careers. We, we live in certain neighborhoods. We develop certain hobbies so that other people will love and accept us. And what he's saying is the fundamental is at the very basis of everything, you are chosen by God. It's a fundamental of our identity once we follow Christ. But there's an ironic counterbalance to that. He says they're strangers or exiles. Some of your translations say strangers, some say exiles. What it basically means is they are not at home. They're scattered throughout throughout this area. He says in chapter 2, verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. Now we feel this. This is the ironic part of it. We are chosen by God. We're his. We belong to him. And yet we feel unsettled. We don't feel at home. And it it seems weird, doesn't it? It seems like, well, if I'm chosen by God, what else do I need? Well, the whole point is is that we are far from home. We're chosen by God to be a part of something that that he's building, that he's renewing. That's the whole story of Scripture. And, And to hold both of these in tension, that we are his, but that we don't feel complete yet, or at home, to, to hold those intention as a part of our identity. And then Peter moves on to talk about what follows from these fundamentals. He, he lists four things. I, I, well, I'm, he probably lists more than that. I'm saying he lists four things. These are ripples that flow out from the fact that we're chosen, and yet we're exiles. We're not home yet. The truths that we have to hold on, even if the world would tell us a different story, and the world does tell you a different story. Every day the world tells you a different story. It tells you you should be comfortable and things should feel good here. It tells you that, you know, what's more important than being chosen by God is being loved by everyone else. But for Christ followers, we have to come back to these truths. Even though we feel like strangers and exiles in the world. 
We're chosen by God, deep enough by him. And Peter says these things flow out of that. The first is this. He says you've been brought into a new family relationship, a new family. Look at the wording, verse 3 and 4. He has given us, once again, it's, he, it's God that's done it. He has given us new birth. This, there's a new family. That's family words. You're, uh, babies are born into a family, right? And then he goes on, he says, and into an inheritance, that's a family word, that will never perish or fade. We're, we're born into a new family, and every family has a culture. We, we don't realize this a lot of times until we leave our family and connect with another family. Um, I won't tell any stories, because I haven't, I haven't approved any stories, but when I first came to enter kind of the Davies atmosphere, uh, believe me, the Davies atmosphere is different than the Kuhn atmosphere, and there's good and bad in both, but it's very different. And some of the things that I learned, I thought, oh, that's okay, that's the Davies way of doing things, and this was the Kuhn way, and it, there neither one necessarily right or wrong, but, but I didn't realize I had a Kuhn family culture that I was carrying with me, because I grew up this way, and that's the way I thought everybody was, right? Well, every family has a culture, and one of the things about this, this culture of this new family, he says, is that you've been given a living hope, a living hope. People around them are dying for their faith, and he's saying, but, but the hope that you're given is living. There's something bigger than death, something alive and vibrant. And it, that living hope, he says, came through the resurrection of the dead, that, that, that death does not stop this new family that you're a part of. There's no way. And it's, it says this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. In other words, you can't even lose it. This, this new family is, is a place of safety and security and love. And that leads us to another thing, that we receive a new hope for the future. We have this living hope, a hope that goes through death and beyond it to deeper life. As Paul writes, death has been overcome with life. And see, that, that's important. We, we don't always think about the importance of life in Christ being stronger than death until, death until we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, right? When we're coasting along and everything's good, that's, it's a concept we know. But when you face death, when someone you love, someone close to you dies, all of a sudden, that truth that life has been over, as, 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 is overcoming death is powerful and tangible. That's that living hope that we cling to, that inheritance that's kept for us. And then he says, and, and you're kept safe through the power of God. That's, that's this living, it's not just a hope that you hope will come true, it's a secure hope that you're going to be kept safe through that that you're carried toward, that you're protected until you reach it. And that gives you the third thing, a new perspective on suffering. Now this is, to me, this idea is the biggest shift that happens when you become a, discipleship of, a disciple of Jesus. Because we are chosen in this new family, and we have this living hope that can never be taken away, no matter the circumstances, we can shift our perspective on suffering and pain and difficulty, to see that even in this, God is shaping us, God is refining, God is doing something bigger. Verses 6 and 7, he says, in this you greatly rejoice, this new family, this new hope, you greatly rejoice, though now, he says, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. How many of you, even today, can say, yes, I'm in the middle of suffering grief in a trial, I don't know what to do. These have come 
so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I'm not saying this is easy, this shift to a different perspective on suffering. I'm not saying it's just like, okay, I'm a Christian now, it's easy. Let's just bring it on. Bring it on. Oh, that's me. I hear the echo. Thank you, Linda. She's just checking on me. That's right. I, I promise I'm saying the same thing on there that I'm saying in here. This is a new world we live in, let me tell you, right? I'm not saying that, that as Christians we just minimize suffering. I, I had a, a friend who went through a big struggle one time, and, and there was a, a you remember when we, back when we had those things called CDs? Before then there were cassettes, remember those? Uh, well, I, I had a CD by a guy named Stephen Curtis Chapman who had just lost his daughter, and he'd written songs out of that struggle and that pain. And my friend was going through a hard time, and I mailed him the CD because I thought it was so good. And he said, I loved every song on there except for one. There's a song on there where Stephen Curtis Chapman says, bring it on. I want to be, and he says, I don't like that song at all. I don't want any more of what I've gone through. And, and I get that. We don't, we're not silly. We're not stupid. We, we don't want suffering to come but we have a new perspective on it as a follower of Jesus. And, and no one says it better than, than this lady, Barbara Brown Taylor. There's a three-minute video clip I want you to see called Smashing Idols Through Pain. And I have to be real careful talking about pain. I mean, I'm a middle-aged white woman who's never broken a bone, so when I talk about pain, it's in a very relative sense, but I've had my share of emotional pain and I've had plenty of people say pain's pain. There's not really a, you know, a scale of it. Yeah, when it hurts, it hurts. And it does seem to me that I've been taught a lot of religion that I would call spiritual bypassing. It kind of taught me how to bypass pain, um, explain away pain, uh, find ways, if I have to feel pain, at least um, to to put so much language around it that it's worse spikes get covered up. So that doesn't seem helpful to me, especially in a religion like Christianity that puts pain pretty centrally in the middle of itself. You know, Buddhism, not so much. Um, forms of Hinduism, perhaps. Islam, more, especially if you're Shia. I mean, there's martyrdom in the heart of that, like there is in Christianity. But at any rate, in a, in a faith like mine, uh, not to accept suffering as a normal, inevitable part of being alive seems like a big mistake, and finding ways to cover it up seems like choosing anesthesia. There is a sense in which if I will trust that what comes to me is for me, now that's the hugest faith statement I can make to you, if I will trust that what comes to me in my life is for me and not against me which usually um, it is depending on my ability to breathe and let it in and that has zip no guarantees about the pain that comes my way but what I find is that it breaks my idols that it breaks my isolation that it challenges my sense of independence it does all kinds of things for me that I would not willingly do that are for me that are for my health so um, even existentially in terms of uh, wisdom and again really wretched things haven't happened to me, but the pain that has come my way, when I breathe into it, the loss of a parent, you know, the ruptures in family, the witnessing of terrible tragedy in those close to me, 
if we can hang on to each other and keep walking in, sometimes I'm not the one who can testify to the health and life in that, but, but there are others around me who can and will. That's a faith statement. It's like begging to be broken, and I really don't want that, so. Because I also know people who pain breaks, breaks them, breaks them, ruins them, empties them out, and they're never full again, so it's a great mystery. And not against me. That's a faith statement. She says, I find that it breaks my idols. It breaks my isolation. It challenges my sense of independence. It does all kinds of things for me that I would not willingly do that are for me and that are for my help. You see, that's a radically different approach. And sometimes in the church, we do what she said. We cover up pain. We, we jump from crucifixion to resurrection without the Holy Saturday of just wondering what's going on, right? And, and I think as Christians, we realize that that pain and suffering is doing something in us. And sometimes we have to sit with it because it, it's got to do its work. It's got to break our idols. It's got to drive us closer to each other. Very often, that, that isolation is something that needs to be broken in our lives, and pain is one way that we cry out for help. It's a radically different perspective on suffering than the world around us has. To embrace the truth that in suffering, even our faith is being refined and that we're being transformed into the image of Jesus, that our idols are being stripped away as it goes through. See, this, this flows out of being chosen. It flows out of this new family relationship. It's anchored in this living future hope that God will finish what he started in us. And we look like strangers and exiles and aliens in the world because we see things so differently. We see things differently. We see suffering from a whole different angle. We don't love it or seek it, but we receive it as it comes knowing that the living hope will bring out Christ in us. And even more than just a new perspective on suffering, when we follow Christ, we're, we're given a new story to live into. Whether we realize it or not, we all have a story that we live out of. How many of you have ever said in your life, that's not fair? Raise your hand. Have you ever said that's not fair? All of you have, right? How many of you have said, that just doesn't seem right to me? We all say that. You know why? Because we have a script and a story in our head of what we think is right. And, and what's happening here is, is sometimes, believe it or not, my coon story needed the Davy story to kind of fill it out a little bit. We needed a different culture, a different story. And Peter's reminding them that this being chosen and living as exiles, it's a part of something bigger. He says in verse 10 and 11, the prophets were trying to figure all this stuff out. And what they realized eventually, he says in verse 12, is that they were telling you those things for you so that you would know after Jesus, after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, that this was a true story that you could live out of. That when the persecution comes, that when Rome attacks, that when you're, you're in the middle of suffering and life is difficult, there is a story that you're living out that's bigger than what the world says is happening. That's bigger even than what you feel. It's a part of this new family, and it's shaping you. One of the family stories that I, I love to realize in my own family, I'm the youngest of four kids, and so my kids are the youngest grandkids of my parents. And so all my nieces and nephews were born earlier and 
started getting married earlier, and I, we, we had this conversation one time after meeting with my girls, after meeting one of the new boyfriends, or almost fiancés at that time, of, of one of my nieces. They sure, you know, the Kuhn family sure sets a high bar. I've been so thankful because my nieces and nephews have, have married believers and believers who have, have a lot going for them. They're working hard in their life and they're, they're following Jesus. And, and what's happened now, that, that family has shifted into mine where my girls have high standards, which I appreciate, right? It's part of our culture. Well, this new story that we live into shapes us. It gives us different values, values of love and service and sacrifice. It gives us different methods. We, we actually lay down our lives for each other. We will, we will risk. We'll sacrifice. We'll, we'll, we'll expose our own weakness to let God bring out his strength. We'll trust when it doesn't look like there's any room to trust, because that's our family story. That's how we live in this new family. The world has a whole different story. And they tell it to you every day, subtly. You don't realize it, but, but it's what we think. It's, what, it's how we get to the, that's not fair, or that doesn't make sense, because we've got one in our heads. Will Willimon says this, to be a Christian means gradually, Sunday after Sunday, to be subsumed into another story, a different account of where we've come from and where we're going, a story that is called gospel. And you are properly called a Christian when it's obvious that the story told in Scripture is your story above all other stories that the world tries to impose on you. And that the God who is rendered in Scripture is the God who has got you. So how do we live into this story? How, how are we supposed to be living as these chosen exiles? We focused on this concept of identity, but I, I, I want to I end by bringing it up close and personal. See, identity is not just a concept. And it wasn't for Peter either. This guy writing it, he had an identity. He was the brave guy that was going to fight for Jesus, and that fell to pieces around him. The story he had about himself fell apart. And yet God responded to him in grace, reminded him that, that he was chosen by God, that he was deeply loved, that he was part of a new family, and he had a living hope. And he's telling that to them, and he's telling it to us. And I want to close with these, remember the three R's? basic education, reading, writing, and arithmetic. I never understood why you could misspell things about a basic education plan. Reading, writing, and arithmetic, the three R's. Anyway, I've got three R's. The first one is this, realize. Realize identity is a gift and not a reward. If you don't hear anything else today, you need to hear this. We may know it in our head, but our lives are wired to work the other way. And Peter's saying, you're not who you are because you're good enough. You're not who you are because God saw something special in you that, would, that he needed. He just chose you. You are his. It's, a reward. it's not a reward. It's a gift, your identity. It's a free gift. You're God's elect. You're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And Peter understood this, but it took him a little while to learn it, right? Remember Jesus said to Peter, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. See, he was Simon before that, and Jesus gave him this new identity, gave it to him. It wasn't that Peter had measured up. Oh, Peter, you're going to be a good one. I better keep you, right? You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And what happened from Peter from then on? Oh, he was perfect. He lived up to his idea. No, he didn't. He blew it in every possible way. 
Even after Pentecost, remember in Galatians, Paul and he are arguing because Peter's treating the Gentiles differently when the Jews are around. Your identity is a gift, not a reward. And so many of us work so hard to impress God and to impress other people to try to get this identity instead of receiving what God has already given you and letting that shape your actions and your behavior. A lot of you know I've, I've taught some workshops on this, what I call silent prayer, centering prayer. I had an epiphany one day when I was praying. And I was sitting there, and I, I realized in, in that few moments of quiet prayer that, that for years I had lived my life doing things for God. And then I came to this point where I realized I don't need to do for God. I mean, you do do things, but I was, I was trying to earn his approval. And I, I began to realize, no, I don't need to do. I mean, I, I will do, but it, that's, I, don't, I don't get anything from doing. I, doing is what flows out of the love. But what I hadn't realized is I would shifted from my value coming from me doing things for God to me thinking about God. I was thinking theological thoughts, and I was teaching, and I was preaching, and I was always aware. And that was what I found my identity in. And in that moment of silent prayer when I'm just sitting with God, all of a sudden it hit me that if I was in a vegetative state, if I went into a coma today and was laying there on a respirator, that God wouldn't love me any less than he does. Even if I couldn't think thoughts about God, if I couldn't do things for God, because my identity is a gift and not a reward. And I tell you, that, that was about five years ago. That's, that's changed me at a very deep level. I hope you can see that, but, but we've got to stop earning our identity and we've got to start receiving the gift that God has given us. Now, it will change the way you live. I'm not saying there won't be things you do out of that, but, but what we've done is put the cart before the horse. We've got to realize that identity is a gift, that you are chosen by him and nothing can stop that. Nothing. Isn't this going to lead to lazy Christians who don't do anything? Well, I've not found that to be true. I mean, people say that. Well, if, if it's all about what God, if it's all, you can, you can have too much grace. I don't think you can. I think when you understand grace, it changes you. One of the key ways to growing into this new story as chosen exiles has to start with realizing that the basis of our identity who we are in Christ is a gift and not a reward. That doesn't mean we've arrived, right? We're just like Peter. Once he had his identity, you're Peter, I'm going to build my church, he failed and failed and failed and failed. And so the second R is we have to receive. We have to embrace the process or process, I can't remember how I'm actually supposed to say that in Canada, of transformation. Embrace the process of transformation. Even though our identity is secure, our lives need to, need to, to flow out of these old habits. We need to move from that into these new habits that come out of our gifted identity. That's why he says, for a little while you may have to suffer these trials. But realize, they're refining you. They're shaping you. you know, when, when things are falling apart in our life, we feel like we've messed up, we've done something wrong. But no, we're not. That's, that's what God is using to strip away the old story and begin to renew the new story. And Peter understood this. And when Christ called him the rock, there was a lot of refining that still needed to be done. In, in, in Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And so I told him not to. That's not what it says, is it? Do you, you hear that, right? Hey, Satan has asked to sift you, so I told him, back off. Jesus didn't say that at all. He said, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. You're going to get sifted. You need the sifting, Peter. 
And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to go to, to, with you to prison and to death. I'll do it all, right? We, we know that that wasn't true. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. See, this, this is a hard path to follow. It means we let go of who we think we are and let Christ replace that with who he's calling us to be. And our idols often have to die. Our perceptions of who we think we are often have to die. But just as Peter's denial reshaped him, our, our suffering and our struggle and even our failures will shape us. If we can trust that what comes to us in our life is for us and not against us, it will break our idols. It will break our isolation. It will challenge your sense of independence and it will do all kinds of things for you that you would not willingly do for yourself. That's the thing. We wouldn't do these things for ourselves. But suffering forces us to do them. We often run away. We want to avoid the pain and the identity. But because of our identity, because that we're chosen, because it's not something we can earn or something we can mess up, we don't have to be afraid to enter the suffering and the pain. We just have to start looking deeper than the circumstances. We need to question our assumptions. And that's your third R, is reflect. Because the, this, this Christian life is about unlearning and relearning. And Peter knew this firsthand. He had tried to serve Jesus and push him toward what he thought Jesus should do, right? Peter, you know how that campus crusade was, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Well, Peter loved Jesus and had a wonderful plan for his life. The problem was, Peter's plan for Jesus was not Jesus' plan for Jesus, Right? And there's that moment when, when, when he said, Jesus said, I'm going to die. And then in, in Mark 8, Jesus turned and looked at his disciples. He rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. See, Peter's learned that you have to unlearn some things. You have plans, you have desires, you have a way that you think your faith is going to play out. And it may not look that way. But you know what? That's okay. Because why? Because you're chosen. You're, you're in this new family. You have a living hope that can't be taken away. So if your plans change, I'm the worst, man. When my plans change for the day, I, I apologize to my wife publicly. I have a hard time when we change plans. And it doesn't matter. I can even like the new plan better, but my mind has to, I'm just like, oh, I wasn't going to do that today. I've got to go somewhere different. I'm like that. But, but Christianity is all about unlearning and relearning, letting go of what I think might happen and embracing what God calls me to. See, he also said to Peter, after that denial, I tell you the truth, Peter, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted. You were in control, Peter. You had the plan. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. Peter, let's go with my story. You unlearn your story and try to learn my story and I'll lead you. Mark Batterson said, half of learning is learning. The other half of learning is unlearning. Unfortunately, the unlearning is twice as hard as the learning, right? We don't want to let go of what we think we have and what we think we know. He said, Batterson continues as he writes about it, and he says, it's like missing your exit on the freeway, and you have to go another mile before you can come back. He said, you made the mistake, you went a mile, but it actually costs you two miles. It's the unlearning that costs. It's the hard part. And much of what holds us back in life is our refusal to let the old go. This is just who I am. This is the way God made me. But no, that's just what I'm like. Well, 
you know, you can unlearn that and relearn something that flows out of your new identity and your new family. Paul's letter is trying to help these believers spread throughout modern-day Turkey realize that they are chosen and that it's a gift to be called by God, not because of what they've done. And this has brought them into a living hope which will come in fullness in the future, and that until then, even suffering and difficulty can be used to shape them into this new family, into this new image of Christ. And a part of living into this new story of God is unlearning what we thought was our story and surrendering to where he will lead us. He says to Peter, you must follow me. You're his, you're chosen. And you may feel out of place. In fact, if you don't feel a little out of place here, you've got to wonder why. Because the world story is very different. You're chosen, you feel, and, and yet you feel out of place. But this new story that he's birthing in you, this living hope, this transformation, even the suffering that comes along with it, is leading you to a very different place. And it's all directed to a place where, where there is living hope, there is resurrection, where death is defeated by life for good, when all things are made new. That, my friend, is when you'll finally feel at home and at peace. God will not fail you in this because you are his. And that's a gift, not something you've earned. Let's pray. God, we, we, uh, we're a long way from first century church in Turkey. And our lives are very different, and we have different struggles and different cultural issues and different ideas of what success is, different technology, different temptations. And yet your word reminds us that there's a a true story underneath this, a story of your gospel, that you have come to seek and to save that which was lost, that you have come to renew your creation, to make all things new, and that includes us, that you've come to shape us into the image of Jesus so that we are like him. And most days we, we feel like we don't do very well with that. And we thank you that, that your continued effort in our lives is not dependent on our ability. It's dependent upon your gift. So let that grace be our first instinct. Let that shape us. Let us receive who we are in you and let that shape our behavior. And help us to live out a Christ-likeness in this community that, that helps us to, to move to the place where lives are renewed and a community is transformed by the power of your gospel. That is what we want to give our lives to in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I'm going to give you something to take to the bank today. I've, well, I've told you this truth. But here's a trick. How many of you hated English grammar and learning that in school? Right? Many of you did. There's a few grammar Nazis in our church. I'll point up that direction for some of you that catch me on my words. But let me just tell you, if you pay attention to verb tenses, when you read scripture, it will transform your life. Okay, just let me, what, what, what are you talking about? Just listen to this. Verse 3 of our text. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us. Already done, past, some, some past form. I don't know the exact part, whatever. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. He has done these things. As you read scripture, God has done all these things already. And, and, and 
the reality is, it, as we mess it up, it doesn't change what has been done. You have been chosen. You're, you, you feel like an exile in the world, but you're living into a new family. And if you can unlearn, if you can allow the suffering to shape you, he will make you into the image of Jesus, which is what his whole purpose is anyway. That's my prayer for you this week. Amen.